Good afternoon, everyone. So uh, Jinha sends her greetings and her love to all of you. Thank you, um, everyone who have uh, sent words of encouragement and support, and we we really appreciate um, we really appreciate the support that's been given by the church. Um, Jinha wanted to. Um, say, if anybody wants to come visit, today would be a great time to come and visit. She prefers that everybody come at once. And so, um, uh, of course, like if you're not able to come at that time, it doesn't mean don't come. But um, if, if you are able, if at the end um, everyone wants to, or there are people that want to say hello to Jinha, we'll just kind of organize a time and we can all go say hello to Jinha after, after church is over. And um, we'd, we'd love to, love to see you. Um, yeah, so basically last week, uh, I guess just giving, uh, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with what happened, Jinha um, had dinner Saturday night. We had a few people over. I think Vanessa and James and David uh, were all present at our house, and we kind of had a nice dinner together. And at the end of the dinner, um, I kind of, uh, I think Vanessa was the first person that saw Jinha, but she was kind of laying on the floor, and she was like, I can't breathe. And we kind of all went over to the room. We're wondering, what is going on here? And... Uh, Anyway, I, I drove Jinha to the hospital, and uh, on my way down, about two minutes down the road, she's like, okay, I'm okay now. <laughs> and I looked at her, and I thought, you're what? <laughs> and she's like, I'm okay, we can go home. And I, I drove her back home, but I was thinking, this doesn't seem right. And um, the next day, uh, she still didn't feel better, went to see, uh, went to see the, uh, one, of the fa- one of our family doctors at the Coburg Medical Center, and they basically felt her abdominal area and said, listen, you should probably get a sonogram of your, of your gallbladder. And uh, we went to the emergency room that night. And uh, basically, they noticed that her liver was inflamed after some blood testing. And initially, they, the doctor came to her and they're like, um, we think you have hepatitis. Like, and I'm sitting in the, in the room next to her. And I'm like, you have what? <laughs> and... Anyway, uh, we, we found out later that she had uh, gallbladder stones, and uh, she had surgery on Tuesday and um, went home uh, Thursday, and she is at home recovering now. And so uh, I think she is enjoying the IKEA chair that we have at home, and uh, she's enjoying her books and, yeah, just taking some time to uh, just rest and recover. And so we're very, very thankful and glad that uh, the surgery went well, and she should be back to normal in about four weeks' time. Um, so for those of you who have Bible studies with Jinha during the week, we're very sorry that she wasn't able to meet, you, uh, meet with you. Um, and at the same time, she looks forward to catching up with you very soon. So uh, we've been covering um, just different aspects of church history um, over the past uh, week or two. And uh, today we're going to be covering the third and fourth century of church history. And we're going to be talking about the development of doctrine, the development of doctrine. Um, so after the second century, uh, the, the church kind of went through this phase of persecution and the phase of growth. And it was really interesting. I had uh, this church history book that I've been reading through, and it talks about how and why, what led to the church, uh, church's rapid growth. And as you were watching in the video, it kind of talked about how church is less of like the centralized building and more of spending time in people's homes, sharing meals, sharing uh, really their life story. And this was very much what happened in around the uh, second and third century of the church. Um, they, the Christians didn't really meet in these large buildings. They kind of met in each other's homes. And it was very normal for them to share a meal together. And this was a, a daily experience. And so 
Uh, can you imagine spending time with your friends every single day in these small communities? And the, the message of the gospel really spread, and this led to the growth of the church. And as the Christian movement uh, gained traction and grew, uh, what happened was um, paganism kind of responded to this Christian growth. And back in those days, uh, the empire of Rome was kind of run uh, by this pagan religion, really. Well, it wasn't run by the pagan religion, but paganism was deeply seated in everyday Roman life. And so what ended up happening was there was this almost antagonism towards Christianity, and persecution uh, was a very normal part of the Christian life. And if you look at the word martyr, uh, the definition for martyr when it's translated is actually witness. And so what ended up happening is the Christians were persecuted, they were martyred, and those that were around the Christians began to ask the question, if this person is willing to die for their faith, I wonder if there's anything more to this religion. And basically Christianity tended to grow because of that persecution. Now, uh, what takes place in about uh, 311 AD is that there's this massive structural change that goes throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, what takes place is Rome is kind of run by these four different rulers. And the four different rulers are kind of trying to gain the most influence and the most power, and they start going to war with each other. And the result of this war was there was a man named Constantine. Let's see if I can get this to... There was a man by the name of Constantine, and he comes into power, and basically what takes place is he has this idea, and he's thinking, how do I kind of have this uh, cementing effect in my empire? How do I unify this empire so that uh, there isn't fighting, that it lasts a long time, and we can stay in power and control people? And his idea was, if I can get Christianity to be that cement or that glue that binds this uh, binds this empire together, then I could really have something that's good. And so Constantine put about these policies that tended to really favor the Christians. Um, he kind of allowed the clergy to be tax exempt. And so he kind of said, look, if you are a leader in the church, you don't have to pay taxes. And that's something that really motivated uh, the church to be like, hey, this is good. Uh, the persecution stopped uh, very quickly. And uh, rather, the Christians were almost encouraged to go to their churches, to meet together, to pray together. And uh, basically, there's kind of this line in, in uh, one of the policies where it says, you are to pray to your God and ask your God to bless this empire. And so the Christians were very happy to really um, receive these uh, policies that really allowed Christianity to grow. And as a result, what happened is people started coming out, out of their homes and meeting in buildings because they thought, hey, we have the freedom of worship. Let's worship in public places. And pretty soon churches began to grow. And uh, what, what you see in church history is that um, there, there are very Christian-like buildings. And uh, they, they were all formatted very similarly. Uh, liturgy began to come into place and a church, an official church structure kind of was implemented in church. And at that point in time, uh, you began to have church leadership. They're called the bishops. And basically, each city would have a bishop. Um, bishop of Nicaea, bishop of Caesarea, bishop of Rome. And what would take place is uh, these bishops were seen as the leaders, and they had many parishes under them. And so uh, in our equivalent day, they had people and leaders. They were called presbyters, 
uh, or we would call them elders, and then below the elders were deacons. And so there was this three-tiered level of leadership. And uh, the bishops began to wear clothing that were similar to the emperors to show that they were in a position of prestige. And uh, uh, they used to dress in very normal clothes that would match that of the people that came to church. But as soon as they were given freedom and finances, uh, they tend to show, hey, listen, we are actual... Uh, they wanted to put some separation between the leadership and the laity. And so uh, the, the bishops would wear these nice clothes and uh, basically everybody would know that person's in charge. And so uh, these, are, these are some of the things that took place. Now, in the Christian mind, there were different responses that happened to this time of uh, gospel prosperity, if you will. One, one response was to embrace the change that was taking place. They were so used to being decentralized They were so used to not having structure, and each group was quite autonomous from each other. Like the bishop of Caesarea would run his church different from the bishop of Constantinople. And so uh, basically there's quite a a broad range of Christianity, if you will. And what happened is, um, yeah, there was kind of this desire to kind of keep everybody together. And so um, I'll I'll share with you just a little bit um, what happened here, but... Basically, yes, one group of Christians that really embraced the change that was taking place, um, they kind of saw uh, Constantine and the Empire of Rome as the uh, gateway to gospel prosperity. And they really thought God had raised Constantine up and raised him to conquer the other empires. And they were just so happy because they're so used to being persecuted. They're so used to having their lives at risk. And now all of a sudden, there's peace and there's freedom to worship however they want to. And so uh, there was a group of people that really embraced uh, Constantine and the Empire of Rome and the changes that were taking place. There was another group of Christians that were very devout, and these are kind of like um, the people that really hold true to truth. They saw the change as a threat to Christianity. They thought, listen, there's so many new people coming to our church, and the number of new people that are that are flooding into the church, the number of pagans that are flooding into the church, we are not able to teach them properly, nor do they want to be taught properly. The church no longer exists as it should be or as it is, and therefore this is becoming dangerous. And so there was a large group of people that kind of exited the church and went into the desert and became very monastic in their, in their type of, uh, in their type of um, um, following of Jesus, in their type of discipleship, if you will. Then there was a third group of people. Uh, They just tended to kind of stay in the church and think, okay, well, there are changes, but let's just see what we can do. And they were kind of a little bit more neither here nor there, but they stayed in the church. Now, it's at this time that because the church has gotten so big and so broad and there are so many different teachings, um, the difference of teaching became a massive problem in the church. Somebody would believe one thing, another group of people would believe another, and they began kind of attacking each other. And when Constantine saw that there was this uh, division that was taking place in the church, he was worried, if there's division in the church, what's going to happen to my empire? And so what Constantine does is he meets with the different bishops and he says, listen, this is not good for the empire of Rome. I want us to gather together and to become unified in our ideas, in our teachings, and I want this division to be basically, I don't want there to be any more division. And so what takes place is, for the first time in Christian history, um, all of the different bishops 
throughout the empire gather together in one place at one time and they begin to discuss the matters and the challenges that they have in church. And there were about five or six big items that they really had to decide how are we going to tackle this issue because it was causing a problem. One of these issues was that um, when persecution came, there would be a group of people that uh, lapsed and they would left the church. And as the persecution would kind of lift off, then those people would say, hey, we actually believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We want to come back to church. But those that were in the church kind of felt like, hey, you guys betrayed us. Who are you to come back and worship with us? We actually don't want you because we feel like you've turned your back on Jesus. And so this was a massive problem. How do we handle people who want to enter back into, into fellowship? And so uh, this is one of the items that, uh, agenda items that were mentioned in this Council of Nicaea. Now, the biggest issue uh, that was covered was a doctrinal issue. It was the issue of uh, the Trinity. And there was a group of people, there was a small group of people, and they were called Arians, uh, that believed um, that there was only one God, and Jesus, or the Word, was someone who was created. The rest of Christianity, they really uplifted Jesus and believed that Jesus was God. And so when this teaching came in that Jesus was a created being, it caused massive division because the different bishops were kind of thinking, how can you say that Jesus, our Savior, uh, the, one who is sa- uh, the one who has redeemed us, our King, is a created being? And this, this actually caused quite a bit of frustration. And so what Constantine did was he said, I'm going to pay for everyone's travel. All of you bishops come, come together, and I want you to sort this out. Now, what happened at this Council of Nicaea, uh, the abridged version, is that you would think that both groups would just present from the Bible what they believed, and each group would say, oh, you've got a good point there, or oh, you've got a good point there. You're right. I'm wrong. And then they would have gotten together, and everyone would have been happy. That is not what happened. (laughs) Instead, what happened is one group, um, and basically Arianism kind of was started from this guy named Arius, but the problem was he wasn't a bishop. He was only a presbyter, and so he wasn't allowed at this meeting. So the main guy who believes in this new teaching uh, is not allowed to present, and so he had to go through another bishop and say, hey, listen, this is what I believe. The bishop was like, Uh, I sympathize for your teachings, I believe you, and he presented, and he thought, look, this idea is logical, and he starts presenting, and what takes place at this council is somebody gets offended, and they began shouting, I'm curious, has anyone ever listened to parliamentary proceedings like on on the radio? Um, As an American, this is something that's kind of new for me, and so I remember Jinha and I were driving in the car, it was exactly like a parliamentary proceeding. (laughs) So one person is saying, uh, listen, if you look at this verse, and he started reading through the text, and somebody shouted, heresy! That's, you know, this is not right! And basically, everyone just stomped the idea down. And so, of course, when you do that, and somebody doesn't feel like they're heard, they're not going to say, okay, the people have spoken, we will walk away. That's not what happened. And the controversy, basically, what happened was, it was reported to Constantine, logical argument is not working, we need help, what do we do? Now, the Council of Nicaea is significant for several reasons. The first reason is this. It's the first time, and like I've mentioned, that the church is gathered together, and it is also the first time where the church has asked the state for help. There has never been a time in history where the Christian leadership go to the emperor and say, we don't know how to sort out this theological problem. Can you give us a practical solution for our theological problem? And Constantine's... um, 
basically his uh, solution is you guys come up with a way to unify yourselves and I will take care of the other bishops. In other words, um, I'm going to kick the other bishops out and they're going to be uh, not excommunicated but exited from community, if you will. And so the result of this is the Council of Nicaea had a Nicene Creed. And this is basically um, the Wikipedia abridged version of the Nicene Creed that just points out a few, uh, three points from the Nicene Creed. And what I haven't included is there, not only is there a statement of what they do believe, there's a statement of what they don't believe. And uh, I, I didn't include that just because um, I found this was a bit more relevant for, for what we're sharing today. So here's the first point. Jesus Christ is described as God from God, light from light, true God from true God, proclaiming his divinity. Jesus Christ is said to be begotten, not made, asserting that he was not a mere creature brought into being out of nothing, but the true Son of God brought into being from the substance of the Father. Thirdly, he is said to be of one being with the Father. Eusebius of Caesarea ascribes the terms uh, homoousios, forgive my horrible Greek reading, uh, or uh, consubstantial, i.e. of the same substance of the Father. To Constantine, who on this particular point may have chosen to exercise his authority, the significance of this clause, however, is extremely ambiguous. And the issues... Okay, th that's just commentary on, the, uh, on, on that point. So basically, they're just saying, Jesus is divine, Jesus is God, Jesus is from God. There are two separate beings that are God, and yet... They are both God. And so here's this point of doctrine uh, that takes place. And so uh, there's a very small group of people from the Council of Nicaea that disagree with the Nicene Creed. And at the end of the Council of Nicaea, they sent out a piece of paper and the bishops signed their names saying, I believe and agree with this doctrine. Now what takes place is uh, that small group of people, they choose I am not going to sign this, doc, uh, this document, and they are basically sent away out of the community of bishops, and they are no longer uh, allowed to be. Um, they're no longer allowed to be bishops in, in their cities. Now you would think, done is done, and uh, right has been done. And I mean, I actually I believe in uh, Trinitarian theology, which is what the Nicene Creed is uh, is about. And um, Adventism in general believes in, in uh, not in general, Adventism believes in Trinitarian uh, theology. And you would think the right thing is done. The bad guys have been sent away. Basically just kind of brush your hands together and then it's done. Now what takes place is one of the presenters of the opposing side that embraced Arianism happened to be related to Constantine. And so even though he lost his position as bishop, he was quite the politician. And what took place is he began promoting his ideas and sharing, hey, listen, we've been wrongly treated. And uh, what takes place is that as years go by and as Constantine dies and as the Roman Empire shifts once again, what takes place is the next emperor that comes into power is actually um, a sympathizer of Arianism. And what ends up happening is almost everybody who signed the Nicene Creed gets kicked out of leadership, and then a new leadership is instated. And this basically goes back and forth through church history. Um, and so it's actually really interesting to read about how the church has handled these doctrinal differences. And that brings us to today. And I don't know about you if you uh, 
have had experience in the church or if you haven't had experience in the church. But doctrine is one of these things that um, is quite divisive. It's something that people argue about. It's something that people, in my opinion, love to argue about. And the reality is that there are just some ideas in the church that are difficult to tackle. And what I wanted to do was share three passages in the Bible that deal with the misuse of doctrine. And I want to share three passages from the Bible that talk about how to properly use doctrine and why doctrine is important. Um, before I go into those three passages, I want to read with you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And this is what, this is what uh, Paul says. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, now that Greek word, didaskalia, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, um, this word is defined as... Um, this word is defined as instruction, teaching, principle, or doctrine. And whenever this word is used, I basically put this in a word search and read each verse where this word is used. And what I found was that there are just as many verses that talk about the misuse of doctrine as there are verses that have to do with the proper use of doctrine. So here are three warnings or admonitions for the misuse of didascalia. The first passage is Matthew chapter 15, verse 9. It says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so what Jesus is saying is, there are people that go around teaching Bible ideas uh, that are completely man-made. And it's, it's quite uh, impressive, some of the things that people come up with. You can really open the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. And... Jesus, when he uses this line, he's saying there are some people that just make up teachings um, and basically it's all for vanity. And so he's saying, I want you to be aware and be warned. Uh, do not fall for man-made teaching. Do not, do not fall for man-made commandments. Here's the second passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So here, Paul says, one challenge of doctrine is that it really brings out the debater in different people. And he's saying one challenge of doctrine is that people are not looking for a solution. People are not looking for the right answer. They just want to talk about why one answer is the wrong answer. Uh, growing up, and I say growing up, I probably still do it right now. Um, I recognize at one point in time in my life, I just like arguing for the sake of arguing. And there is nothing like a contentious debate where the easy answer is not, there just isn't an easy solution for a topic. It's so fun to talk about those things. And so uh, I would gather together with my friends and we would debate. And what started out as a harmless debate turned out 
to become something that's very personal. <laughs> and oftentimes, one person would be offended. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was another party. And we have these pet debate topics, especially uh, in the church, and some of them have been going for a long time, some of them are very recent. Um, I'll list a few of them. One is this idea of the very thing that the Niceans argued, or not, they weren't Nicene, one thing that was argued about in the Council of Nicaea. Is Trinitarianism, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, truth? Or is it just God the Father and there's kind of like this hierarchy? And when you read the scriptures, I believe that there are more texts that talk that, in, that favor Trinitarian uh, theology. And at the same time, there's some on the other side that would side with Arian, uh, Arius that would say, hey, you need to consider these points. And oftentimes in our arguing, we sometimes just say, no, it's simply this. But it's actually a very, very complex topic. I don't know if any human can fully understand the dynamics of God. And if we ever come to the point where we fully understand the dynamics of God, it's kind of like we have come to the point where we fully understand the divine. And that person in and of themselves becomes divine because it's like there's nothing else I need to know. It is impossible to fully understand God. That's my point. Another thing that we like to argue about is music. Should we have music with drums or no drums? And it's like, if you've got a thing that's got some skin wrapped around it, well, that's from the, and then it just goes on from there, right? And my point is this. There are some times when you read the scriptures, and scriptures doesn't always, scripture doesn't always account for instruments that haven't been in existence yet, or technology that hasn't been in existence, and we like to place morality on certain things. Synthesize music, oh, you know, that kind of, that sounds worldly to me, therefore it's wrong. And people argue and argue and argue and argue, and there are just some topics that are difficult. The one that our church currently is uh, discussing is this idea of women in ministry. Countless pages have been produced on for and against, and it's kind of like at one certain point in time, um, it's important for people to recognize this is not a simple topic. This is not a simple topic. And at least to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Anyway, difficult topic. And I can list several others, but those are just some that come to my head, uh, come to my mind. People love to argue, and doctrine brings out the, uh, the best debaters of us, if you will. Um, and so basically, Paul says, be wary of doctrine. Be careful of doctrine. Here's a third text. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Teachers to suit their own passions. And so this final admonition or warning of how doctrine is used is people are selfish in general. And Paul is saying people will have teachings that suit their needs. And uh, basically Paul is saying one indicator... Uh, where you know that you need to be careful is if somebody is practicing something out of pure selfishness, it just turns into idolatry, basically. It turns into something that you can manipulate. God becomes someone whom you can edit. And, and that God that you create benefits you personally. And Paul says, be wary of that doctrine. Now here are three passages where doctrine uh, is a good thing. The first passage is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 and 16. Paul says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. 
Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And Paul here connects this idea of doctrine and this idea of experiencing salvation. Now, here's what I don't think Paul is saying. Paul is not saying, once you understand doctrine, you are saved. What Paul is saying is, the proper usage of doctrine is to cultivate people's understanding so they can be saved. It's like this, uh, and I've used this example before. I, I recently had an eye exam, and they put the little um, the thing over my eyes, and there's like 500 little lenses, and the optometrist is saying, uh, here's, the, here's option A. Can you see, or, see better with option A or option B? And I've got to tell the optometrist, option A is better or option B is better. And basically, she keeps sliding different lenses until I can see clearly. And what doctrine is supposed to do is, it's supposed to give us a perceptual lens so that we can clearly see Jesus and experience salvation. It doesn't mean that that the lens can save you. It just means that you can see properly so that you can make the right decision. I want to give an example of this. If you go to the book of Romans... And we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. If you have your phones or your Bibles, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read the first couple verses. And here's what the passage says. And this is kind of like heavy theological words, so just bear with me for a moment. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace where we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, I just want to stop right there. So Paul is saying, we can have peace with God and Uh, The way that we have peace with God is basically, he says, you have to step into grace. Step into grace. Now, I want to ask you a question as you're reading through the first two verses. How do you step into grace according to Paul? And I'd like you to look at the verse and just say the answer. How do you step into grace? Yes, by faith, okay? So he says, you are saved, you can have peace by stepping into grace. Well, how do you step into grace? And Paul says, by faith. Does that make sense as you're reading through the passage? Now, here's my question. What does it mean to have faith? Faith in what? And the way that you find out what Paul is referring to is by reading the previous passage to figure out what exactly are you supposed to have faith in, if that makes sense. So if you go to Romans chapter 4 and read the last portion of Romans chapter 4, and if you can read uh, just silently, um, reading verses 20 to the end of the verse. 20 to the end of the verse. And I'll just give you about maybe 15 seconds, 10 to 15 seconds, just to read over those four or five verses. So Paul says... You are saved by stepping into grace. And the question is, how are you saved by stepping into grace? By faith, by believing. And my question is, believing what? Now, if you're reading 
verses 20 to 25. I'd like, you, I'd like to highlight a specific promise that's mentioned here in Romans chapter 4. And if you look at verses 23 and 24 and 25, what is it that Paul wants you to have faith in? That's right, the resurrection. So Paul is saying, Jesus took on the sins of humanity, died, was put into the tomb, and he raised again. And because Jesus resurrected and conquered sin, you have the promise of victory from sin as well. And so Paul says, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you will experience grace. Okay? Now that is a heavily theological statement. That idea of the resurrection, it's a doctrine. Okay? Understanding the resurrection can give us a better understanding of what it means to experience grace. Because what it's basically saying is, Jesus died and rose again, right? It has nothing to do with what I've done. If I go murder somebody, did Jesus die and get resurrected? Answer? No? Yes? Oh, people are mixed in the room. If I do something bad, did Jesus, was Jesus resurrected? Yes. The answer is yes. Whatever I do doesn't change the fact that Jesus was resurrected. Does that make sense? And so in my mind, the question is, how can myself, a sinner, experience grace? And Paul's answer is, you need to understand what Jesus has done on your behalf as a sinner. Jesus died, was put in the tomb, and he resurrected, conquering sin. And if you understand the fact that Jesus conquered sin for you personally, you understand that idea, it's something that you can hook your faith onto, belief. You can say, I believe Jesus and died and rose for me. And the experience of salvation is supposed to take place. And Paul says, now you have peace. Does that make sense? So this idea of doctrine is supposed to cultivate the experience of salvation. And so Paul says, understand, follow doctrine. Here's the next passage. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The idea of doctrine is saying, I know there are a lot of things that are... Uh, difficult. There are a lot of things that I don't understand, but there are a few things that I can understand when it comes to the teaching of the Bible. And that understanding is supposed to cultivate this idea of hope. I can actually hook my faith onto something that is solid. The idea that Jesus died and rose again for you, the idea that Jesus offers salvation for you, is supposed to inspire, uh, inspire hope. There's this uh, saying, a person can last about uh, 10 days without food, three days without water, but not a moment without hope. And so the idea of doctrine is supposed to cultivate hope as we, uh, as we, search, uh, as we search for God. Here's the final passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint 
with which, is, which, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea of experiencing and understanding doctrine properly is supposed to give us a fuller experience with Christ. It's supposed to build the church of God. It's supposed to inspire faith. It's supposed to increase the love that we have for one another. I think when we approach the topic of difficult doctrine, difficult teachings that seem to divide, the question is, is this causing us to be more united or is this causing us to be more divisive? And how we approach a topic is just as important as the end result of what we get from that discussion, if that makes sense. And so what Paul says is, doctrine is supposed to build up. And there are times where it tears down. And what we have to ask ourselves is the question, are we arguing about the right thing here? Are we arguing about the right thing? And I hope that as we are building this community of faith, we're going to come across challenges uh, differences of opinion, differences of teaching from amongst uh, different people. Someone's going to believe something different than, than another person. And I hope that as we grow together, as we share the Word of God together, that we would really be able to grow in doctrine, grow in love, and may we have a, a better understanding of Jesus. May God bless you this afternoon.